Well, we're back. Matt Gurney here, Jen Gerson with me. It is the Line Podcast, and we don't really remember how to do this. So let's see how this goes. We're going to talk journalism. We're going to talk the state of politics. We're going to talk wars in the Middle East and in other places. We're going to talk about Jen getting stranded because it was cold out, uh, which I didn't tell her I was going to ask her about. So surprise. And most of all, if you want to keep us out of politics, and you should, subscribe today. Because if you give us money, we will never need to run for public office. All that and more on this, the first episode of The Line Podcast in 2024. All right, Jen, curveball. I uh, didn't tell you I was going to ask about this. I I kind of vaguely know what happened to you last week because mm-hmm. we tried to come back last week. We did. But I was out of town. Like, that was booked off. I was out of town, and you yes. were also booked off out of town. But we thought we had it under control because we were out of town at different times. Mm-hmm. What happened to you? You got stranded in some tiny little airport somewhere. Yeah. So, I mean, I was invited and very honored to be invited but by uh, Vancouver Island University to give a talk about freedom of speech and the technological age, kind of building on some of the stuff, of course, I've written on C-18, C-11 and and, and the rest. Um, and it was a really interesting opportunity because, I mean, when does a journalist ever get to talk about freedom of speech? Like, it's such a... Yeah, it's never happened before. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so anyway, uh, I got invited. Really nice guy. Uh, they have a, actually a really fantastic liberal arts program at that university from what I could tell like if you want university it's Vancouver Island University I think it was formerly Malaspina College Um, if you are looking for a small school that is still producing uh, a liberal arts degree like a very classical liberal arts degree it looks like they are very committed to that kind of a program and that kind of an education I was looking at their their advertising for the program and I was really impressed actually it was kind of the kind of education I wish that I'd gotten so anyway that's throwing that out, out for you they invited me as part of their speaker series, I was protested for the first time. So that was very exciting for me. Congrats. It's a, it's a big the, day in someone's it's life. A, it's a big day in someone's life when you're protested for the first time. So uh, that was that was very interesting. Um, and then, of course, I uh, tried to get back. I, it was supposed to be there. I was supposed to fly into Nanaimo and then back the next day and to back to Calgary. That should be like an hour and a half flight. It's on a prop plane. It should be easy peasy. But that's when I left the cold snap hit Calgary and it was literally so cold in Calgary that the de-icing fluid stopped working. So the flight that was supposed to coming back from Calgary to Nanaimo to pick me up was delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And finally, after about an hour, and I have to set the scene here because like the Nanaimo airport, God bless Nanaimo, but the Nanaimo airport's got nothing going for it here, man. There's not a restaurant in there. There was not a bookshop. There was like nothing by which I could kill six hours of my brain in that kind of an environment. Is there a it, Tim's it, or a cafe? No, or oh God, no. There was one kind of like completely independent coffee shop that was selling sausage rolls and dark coffee. And like, I think they could have also sold me some eggs or something, but like it was, it was the definition of a regional airport here. Right. Um, so anyway, I, I go into the most veteran WestJet attendant that I could possibly find. And I just said like, are we getting out of here today or, or what? And she just gave me this look like, <laughs> could happen, might not happen. And of course, it's, not like, there's a, it's not like there's any other flight to Calgary from Nanaimo from that airport. Like, it's like, this is your one a day. And she said, look, if we do get out of, if you do get out of here today, it'll be later tonight. Like the, the, the flight, the de-icing fluid is just starting to work now. And the planes, the plane back isn't even loaded. It'll be ours. So I just said, look, how about this? How about we move my flight from today to tomorrow from Vancouver? Because Vancouver, of course, is a major hub. You've got Boeing's. It's an airport. And also, if that flight gets canceled, there will be six other flights to Calgary that day. I can find a bump. And And it'll be in Vancouver. And it'll be in Vancouver. So, you know, I'll figure something out. Um, I've got enough friends in Vancouver. If I need to crash on the couch, I can, right? There'll be hotels. I'm not worried. So she said, that's actually a very smart idea. So basically, I last minute find the three o'clock ferry out in Nanaimo. I land in Tawasin. I find a hotel in next to the Vancouver airport. And I'm on like the seven o'clock flight the next day back to Calgary. And then by the time I get to Calgary, it's noon. I got to pick up my son. And I don't know what happened to me. Like, I think just the combination of the stress of the travel and then like the emotional fallout of being protested just hit me all at once. And I wound up falling asleep 
at six o'clock at night, crashing for 12 hours, waking up on Saturday and saying, screw it, I'm quilting. <laughs> Today is my quilting day. I'm not talking to my children. I'm not cleaning my kitchen and I'm not doing work. I'm going to the quilting store. I'm buying pretty fabric and I'm cutting them into very precise lines in order to cope with my, my emotions. And that's what I did all Saturday. So I just, I gave up. I gave up. That was my story. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, I was out of town Thursday <laughs> right through Sunday. So, yeah, sorry, guys. We meant to get the sorry. line going again, but it just wasn't possible because the de-icing fluid froze, which is a sign that you, you're not getting home that day. Yeah. All right. So we're we're kind of rediscovering our sea legs a little bit on how to do these podcasts because of the uh, the various disruptions. We haven't done one of these in about a month, but we're excited to be back. I just kind of want to start with a general observation on uh, politics, and I'm not going to try and torque this. This is just my, my general, hey, here we are in mid-January of a new year comment. I think in December, and we talked about this a lot on the podcast, for a couple of weeks there, it looked like the conservatives were fucking it up, or at least it was plausible that they were. And a lot of liberals, and I bookmarked a lot of tweets, which I go back to and find very amusing now. We're like, aha, Pierre has revealed himself to be the evil charlatan that he is, and Canadians have seen through it. And all of this was because if you looked at the polling aggregators, the liberal numbers, instead of going like all the way down, had gone like sideways for a little bit, maybe even a tiny bit up. But the up, if it existed, was within polling margins of error. Mm -hmm. And then we, we had the break, everybody rests up, we come back. And the slide is resumed for the liberals here, and it's getting really ugly. And I don't know if I have any particular wisdom to offer, but what I'm kind of wondering, and this is something I talked about once with a friend, one of the things I really hate on social media is when these tweets or insert reels, whatever, start going around where one side is like clipping something or they're screen capping a tweet and they're going, check out how Jen totally destroyed matt and then you check in like five days later and our our hypothetical matt is just doing it's fine like it's not destroyed it's notably non-destroyed <laughs> and it like it's just this weird like it's i think it kind of started with like political debates where like the moment the debate was over like cpc comms would have a tweet out like Pierre Polyev wins first debate or just, or liberal comms, Justin Trudeau wins first debate. But like, there's been this weird creeping political spinization of like normal human dialogue. I think it's no, it's the Ben Shapirification of, 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 of the discourse. And it is a, it is a result of the algorithms and the way that the algorithms favor these 15 to 30 second clips. But it also like changes our brains because yeah, one of the things I've told you before, and I'm not going to pick on her because she's a mutual friend of us both, but like, there's a particular person I'm thinking about this who's a particularly good example. One of, and I wasn't the first person to to make this comparison, but something social media has done is it has turned totally normal, average human beings into their own press secretaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where it's like they're constantly releasing statements. Hmm. Like you know, the White House deplores the recent outbreak of violence in someplace no one's ever heard of before, except the people unfortunate enough to live there, but. Like, that's nothing new, but now we have, like, stay-at-home Edmonton mom of three deplores outbreak of violence. And, like, they have these, like, carefully yeah. crafted statements where we're all our own comm secretary. This is invaded into journalism, which is, you know, like, you and I are just two, two hacks doing stuff on a podcast, man. Like, I am not going to be issuing a press statement deploring every bad Everything. thing that happens in the world i don't i don't i, I can't like you can't like it, some it's people too sure much. try some people sure try but i'm also not going to be held to a standard where somebody's like if i do decide to comment on an issue and someone says yeah but what about this you said nothing about that i'm yep. not gonna that's not an accurate yep, that's true that's, that's not a credible that's not a credible comeback or defense i'm not going to deplore every single bad thing that happens in the world i am not a public figure and i'm not the white house well i'm sort of a public figure kind of but i'm like i'm not the well, white it. house I, I can take a week off quilt is what i'm saying here well, like, something happened on saturday i'm not deploring it i just think it's interesting to like in december there's like the slightest 
briefest pause in the liberal freefall and thousands of self-appointed pundits and hacks and flacks and spinsters and party spokespeople are like the comeback starts now and we hit january and it's just still going and all those tweets are still out there and you know one of the things i find interesting i still don't know why the liberals are tanking like i i could sketch out a theory of all of the things they've done wrong like I could, I can sketch out a narrative for you of why they will not win the next election, but I can't really tell you what started six months ago and has continued. I can the, tell you. I don't. Let me People finish this. Being, oh, sure. I'm sorry. Let me just ahead. like I was saying to John Wright. Uh, you, you know John. He's a friend of mine. He's a mm-hmm. pollster, and I was saying to him this morning that sometimes in politics, like a balloon pops, something happens, pop. This just feels like a balloon slowly leaking air. Yeah, I, I know what happened. What happened is that about six to eight months ago, and a little bit before for a lot of other people, people stopped being able to afford their groceries and began to get real afraid and real angry about what their futures held. I don't and you're looking at the, six months no. ago. Well, it's not just six months ago though, right? Like it's 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 a it's a slowly, 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 and then and then and then quickly kind of problem, right? Mm. And what happens is is that you've got a liberal government that seems to be fixated on EVs and <laughs> plastic bags. Like, this bags do not complain, contain plastic. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, this this is a liberal government that that is fixated on trying to cement for itself some concept of a legacy around issues that people don't give a shit about anymore because life got real. Mm-hmm. That's why that's why they can't come back from this. And you can sit here and they can say, "Well, we're going to put more conversation and more time into housing, for example." And yeah, they need to go do this, but nobody has actual faith in their capacity to fix the housing problem, nor should they. And you know also, I mean, even things like even the things like the immigration stuff. I mean, I wrote a column for the Globe about student student uh, visas and and the fact that if you if you wanted to curb immigration in a way that would be minimally harmful while demonstrating that you were listening to what Canadians and what their actual concerns on this stuff, the lowest hanging fruit for the lowest hanging fruit is student visas, particularly to mm-hmm. like these faux quasi strip mall colleges in Ontario. Right. Like, like, which is just some of that's provincial. I don't know how much of it's provincial. A lot, a lot of it is provincial, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying like you would curb student visas. That would be the, like not, not eliminate, but curb them, put a significant stop on their growth. That is the lowest hanging fruit. Right. And I think even you had Sean Fraser as the housing minister come forward and acknowledge that. And for five seconds, they were considering doing something substantive. And then I think they got inundated with people accusing them of being racist and they just sort of retreated. Like they turned into like little little shell, little to their little shells, and they went away. And that just demonstrated to people yet again that these are people who are just so completely focused on demonst- on creating a legacy on on the appearance of virtue and on superficial policy that they're just totally divorced from where people actually are and what the, what 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 the what the real issues facing people actually are, and they're unwilling to make the necessary reforms and changes that are going to be required of a government in order to address it. And I think that that, that hit a terminal realization about six months ago for a lot of people. And I just don't think they're ever, they're, they've been able to demonstrate any kind of recovery as, as a result of that. It's interesting to me because one of the things, I'm not going to call it a sleeper issue because it's not, there are definitely people talking about it, but I don't know if enough people have realized how many mortgages are going to roll over over the mm-hmm. next two years. Yep. And ours rolls over in May. Oh, have you okay? I don't. I'm not going to ask you to air all your dirty laundry here on the show, but like, have you guys already sat down and like done the numbers and what that's going to mean? Well, we sat down and did the numbers a year ago. Yeah, we're, we're not happy campers. Yeah, I mean, subscribe we're not to the be, line. Yeah, subscribe to the line. I mean, don't get me wrong. We're not in a position where we're going to get hopefully booted from our house, which puts us in a really, really luxury position compared to a lot of people. A lot of people are in way worse shape than we are. But yeah, our quality of life is going to collapse after May. It's just what it is. Wee. Oh boy. Um, and I would say, knowing you guys as I do, knowing both your your income status but also your spending habits, you're probably better off than ninety five percent of homeowners. I thrift. You, know, you do that's thrift. My indulgence. I go yeah. to the Value Village. Yeah, I was talking I make to a buddy. My own clothes. <laughs> I don't know what do a wonderful you. job of it, though. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it kind of fudges. We're all works in progress. Um, 
I was talking with a buddy recently and my buddy, he, he'll be okay. He He's high enough net worth um, that he can absorb the hit, but he's got to refinance sometime in the next few months. And it's going to be 3000 bucks yep. just out of his monthly cash flow, yep. which he can probably float. But that, yeah, you, he's you, in a, even, he even runs his in, own Toronto high-end like boutique firm. Yeah, but even if you're in the top 1%, top 5%, top 10%, yeah, like you, you'll miss $36,000 a year coming out of your yeah, cash flow. Uh, like, I'm sorry, like, you have to be uber rich, multi-millionaire 10 times over before this stuff doesn't actually seriously hurt your quality of life. 99% it, it, of Canadians are going to, are, are seriously feeling significant hits. And yep. I think probably as many as 50% of Canadians are, are feeling like, they can't afford the groceries they could afford two years ago. They're eating shittier than they were two years ago. They're not e sleeping as well as they were two or three years ago as a result of all this. Like, this is something that I think, I mean, I, this is an old complaint, but our political class is so insulated from this conversation. Like, they just, they, they don't live life on $50,000 a year. That's, that's, I think the median, mm -hmm. what's the median wage in Canada is $50,000 a year. Yeah. Try and try and do a budget. If you're in politics right now, please try to do a budget on fifty thousand dollars a year. Try checking that now. Actually, median household income, Canada. Like uh, you're, median you're, annual family income, a couple in Canada. Uh, let's see. That's one of those bullshit websites. It's just there. We go. Canadian income survey from Stackhand. Median after-tax income for economic families and persons not in economic families, $68,000. Oh, sorry. Okay, 68. That's higher, than I, higher than I would have higher, thought. Higher than um, I would have thought, too. But please try and tell me, don't even pick Toronto or Vancouver. Anyway. You know, try, try, pick, yep. pick a city. Well, you were just in Nanaimo. A, pick Nanaimo. Pick Nanaimo. Pick, pick Medicine Hat. Pick Kingston. Yep. Pick, pick Red Deer. Look at what your median rent is and try and build a budget around that for a family of four. The, build, your, build your groceries around that. The last two years, purely in really? terms of interest rates and higher cost of living. So I, I've told people this before um, on air, I think maybe in the podcast, because I'm a freelancer, I have to very carefully track a bunch of expenses mm -hmm. because some of them I claim for tax purposes and some of them I don't, and some of them I claim partially. So I can go back years and show you what I spent on XYZ every month. And it's really interesting just to go look at it because I haven't done this in a meticulous way. I've kind of done it in a ballpark way. But my sense is that over the last two years, I don't think my family's gone backward in standard of living. I think we've held the line, but I think we've done it by increasing after-tax spending by about 30000 bucks a year. Hmm. And that has been what has been required to hold the line. In, yeah. in Toronto over the last two years. And I'm obviously in a fortunate position that I was able to do that. What it has basically meant is that rate of wealth accumulation and savings has slowed, but mm -hmm. I still had the cash flow to cover the uh, the difference. But I am well aware of the fact that my family is in an unusual ec economic situation. Yeah, and and I live in an affluent area and people are telling me that they're struggling. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm... Again, we're better off than most people, I think, for a lot of different reasons. I'm not as affluent as you are for a lot of different reasons as well. And that's fine. Um, we're working on that. We're working on that. We're working Subscribe. on that. But, but, but yeah, like I said, even for people who are lucky and people who have have, have benefited for a lot of different reasons, um, you know, everybody, it's everybody's feeling the heat. Unless you're pulling in multi millions a year, you, your your quality of life has declined in the last and and noticeably and appreciably in the last six to eight months. One of my ask. friends told me about a, a couple of months ago, just before Christmas, that they had lost a bidding war on a house, and they they were really emotionally invested, like they had real estate mm -hmm. lust, like they really wanted this particular house, and they kept trying and trying to raise you. Eventually, they lost. They just good old fashioned bidding war, and they lost it. And that friend had told me that if they had one if they'd gotten that house they probably would have already lost it really yeah huh because they would have been completely over their heads and the outlying yeah. areas of the gta cottage country and and the exurbs are tanking because mm -hmm. the uh, covid era uh, exodus is reversing people are coming back to the city mm -hmm. so it's bad 
Um, yeah. yeah. And look, I, I also just think along the way, one of the things that's happened to the government, and it's not a specific thing over the last six to eight months, is that they, and it, it's nothing, I've said this before, I'll say it again, not a lot of what we're seeing happen to this government it requires a special explanation. You you can get 90% of the way to understanding what's actually going on by going, well, they've been in power for nine years. Yeah, they've been in power for too long. Or, or just kind of the and, natural and also, it's it's interesting to me as well as that they're they're trying to change things up they are trying to bring new people into the prime minister's office they do yeah. seem to have, seem to have recognized in recent months that there's a there's a blind spot they're lacking um and so they are trying to i think fill that blind spot they're not trying to fill that blind spot with people who are radically different from them which i think is an error which is not to be disrespectful i think your friend, good friend, Supriya Devetti is, is one of the people who recently uh, got it, uh, hired into the PMO. And I'm not trying to, I like her a lot. <laughs> I like Supriya a lot. Supriya, I like you a lot um, personally, but she she's not, I think I said, I said that two years ago, I said this government would do really, really well to find like a Saskatchewan farmer. Yeah. Just pick a Saskatchewan farmer and put that person in your prime minister's office and let that person listen in and get you, get, get some feedback from someone who was really radically outside your bubble. And I think Supriya is great. I think she's going to do a good job at everything she does because she's she's a, she's a really committed and talented individual, but she's not different enough from their bubble. I think in, in Supriya's particular case, uh, first of all, I agree with your broader point, um, but I think in Supriya's particular case, they're bringing her on for fairly narrow file and it's a file mm. she has some knowledge in so i don't know if that's going to be an issue but i think in general I don't know the details of that so. in general and look i it's funny i was actually talking with a conservative uh this morning uh about the couple of months they've had um and there has been there was an acknowledgement well it wasn't so much an acknowledgement as accepting my profane accusation that uh that the conservatives seem to have escaped the end of 2023 in a good position but that's a degree of luck like they they were they oh, were yeah. doing some stupid stuff at the end of Absolutely. last year, and one of uh, the commonalities between this, and this is what I was saying to my conservative friend, and this is something you and I talk about a lot. You need a red team member. You need someone mm -hmm. who is in a position of trust and authority in your inner circle, whose job it is is to go. You know, hang on, this is a bad idea. Yep. The, the, what we're doing here is stupid. And I think the PMO desperately needs a person who has the respect of the prime minister and, and the chief of staff, but also the guts to basically go, we're fucking up. This is stupid. And I don't think they have that right now. I don't think they have that. And also the other thing too, is you need to cycle that person out like every 18 months, because what happens is when you bring in advisors, the advisors they get one start, over. yeah, they get one over, they get, they get yep. sucked into the group think. So you need to be cycling that out. And I think that's something that this prime minister's office has generally been very bad at. Yeah, I agree. Um, anyway, I, I don't want to talk too, too much about this because we got lots of other on our plate and another 15 minutes to go into it. So because I've got to go pick up my son and then we can come well, back. It's the first always, podcast back. We're shaking the rust off. Um, we're shaking the rust off. It's great. Take, take five minutes and tell me other than um, it, it's been a, not a ton interesting going on in Ontario right now, but Alberta is remaining stubbornly interesting. Alberta is remaining stubbornly Notley gone and you guys Notley ran out gone. of power. So we I just want to get power, this on yeah. the record. And I've done this to you already, but I'm going to do it again. Mm -hmm. Western bastards freezing in the dark. Ha ha. That's fair. That's fair. So anyway, we are actually Come to Toronto to where we have heat. Correct. Yes. Um, also, a lot of hot air. But that's a different conversation. Yeah, you'll be um, asking for it soon enough. <laughs> so, yeah, two things. One, we are running a, a piece on Monday from Andrew Leach. Who, oh, good. Uh, okay. That came yeah, through. Yeah, That okay. came through. It's landed. It's in the system. It's scheduled to go 6 a.m. on Monday. And he's going to explain to us, Andrew Leach is, is kind of one of the go-to um, energy economist types here in Alberta. He yeah. explains what in the heck happened in Alberta. How in the hell is it Alberta, of all places, has ran out of power very close to ran out of power in the midst of um a cold snap you know there are a lot of people who want to politicize this they they're going to say well you know look at this daniel what a great thing for daniel smith to put a pause on renewable energies when clearly we need more renewable energies there are a lot of people who politicized it from the other side saying well gee wouldn't it be nice to have those coal-fired uh, power plants right about now maybe we shouldn't phase those out quite so fast <laughs> um there's kind of a grain of truth to all of it the real truth as to why we almost ran out of power is a little bit more mundane. 
And I'm going to, should I spoil it or should I should just no, make save people it, read save it? it. I'm, I, save I, I'm it. excited to read it. So I'll check it you out be excited. on the weekend. Yeah. The, the real reason is actually much more boring and much less politically uh, usable than That's people life. realize. That's life. But it's also really interesting. And Leach is a good, solid, clear writer. So uh, I think that, that will be interesting. Good. Uh, then we got, yeah, uh, Rachel Notley resigned. Personally, I think it's a little bit late. I thought she was going to resign a little bit sooner than she did. And I'm wondering what's happening internally that caused the resignation to come when it did. Is it possible um, she just had to wait a while to get the job offer she was waiting for? No, I don't think so. Um, for reasons that I'll explain later when we're not on air and I can't be held accountable for my words. Um, but anyway, now it's just a question of wh which who's going to replace her and which faction. Again, I should actually say something very positive about Rachel Notley. Can I, just, you know, can I say, before you do, can I say something very positive about you? Yes. You just had the judgment to not say the thing that would get us sued on the podcast. <laughs> it's good. I'm getting better. I'm really proud of you. So I want, I want everyone to know that we'll um, talk about um, it off the air, but yes, please, um, by all means, go say yeah. something nice about Rachel Notley. That will not get us sued. I think this is, this is, this is what comes with age and maturity, right? You know, ability to yeah, we'll go with tongue. that. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So Rachel Notley, I will just say something positive about her. She is someone who came into Alberta politics as like the head of a fringe party that never in a million years was going to win anything. And she turned this party, I think, by dint of opportunity and luck, but also by dint of her personal charisma and her pragmatism into a two-party province. Whether or not the province will be able to maintain that hold on a two-party system or whether or not it will devolve into another, you know, 40-year conservative rule, I don't know. But um, very few people could have done what she did and did it as successfully as she did. And I would also say that Rachel Notley, uh, up until, I think... Klein, maybe no, Stelmack maybe, is I think like the first uh, Alberta premier to actually serve a full term in like a decade. It's crazy. So she did that. She did, she ran a relatively scandal-free government. And I think that she was for the most part, a really pragmatic leader. And she set the uh, Alberta NDP up for long-term successes. I think they totally screwed the pooch on the last election, but that'll happen. And, uh, I think that a province that is competitive electorally between more left and more right factions is a province that is going to be healthier in the long run. So I I, I say thank you for your service, Ms. Notley, and peace out. Have a lovely next chapter of your life, whatever that chapter chooses to be. Um, so now the question is who replaces her and whether or not the, the uh, successor can keep this party on the course of being sort of pragmatic prairie socialist as opposed to far left, whatever it is that you guys are doing out East. And uh, if they can do that, whether or not they can continue the, the, the organizational and the fundraising support and the ability to attract talent that Rachel Notley set them on, on course for. So it'll be an interesting thing to watch. The NDP out East is strategically speaking, and I'm going to use technical jargon here. It's just totally fucked. Oh yeah. Because it's, I, I just don't like you, you guys might be able to, pull it off uh in in the west a bit longer but it's getting really hard to have a party that is going to represent the white collar downtown highly educated liberals are neoconservative shills types yeah. and also the blue collar steel mill workers of hamilton it's an impossible alliance you can't maintain that alliance not not in ontario where the the uh, natural trajectory of both those groups is just continuing to widen the gap. Um, mm -hmm. Look, I mean, the liberals are largely dead anywhere outside urban areas. Um, and that's and that's even when they're winning elections. They're largely dead outside winning uh, urban areas. Like mm -hmm. a good election for the liberals is when they go from their urban base into the suburbs. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, like they have self-sorted themselves into one kind of demography is where they can basically win. The NDP in the East, at least, is heading down that same path. And I don't know which direction they're going to go go to yet. I am not surprised to already see a lot of interest in Rachel Notley bumping up a level of government. Um, we'll see if it happens, but like people are talking about it already. So the I way you're the, pursing the, your lips is telling me we need to talk off the air. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I have a lot of respect for Rachel Notley, and I would love to see her be able to do something like that, because I think she really could inject mm -hmm. a, a, a very different vibe to a federal NDP than they mm -hmm. have right now. I mean, 
you and I are both cringing over the video that Jagmeet Singh released, sort of condemning the luxury condos. That's not how economics works. If you increase the supply, that will help reduce prices. It doesn't matter whether or not the supply is luxury, quote unquote, or not. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I think she could be great for that. Uh, I don't know if it's going to happen for a lot of interesting reasons that I can't talk about on air, but uh, I would love to see that. I think that that would be a wonderful, I think she presented really fantastic and wonderful foil and, and could be very effective. That being said, the Alberta NDP is a, is a unique beast and the labor movement here in this province isn't as strong as it yeah. is in other provinces just due to the high wages. Yep. And that changes the nature of the an NDP party in this province, right? How this much is of not... it um, is also the fact that a lot of your skilled labor force is not full-time Alberta residents. People come in, they want know. maximum high income earnings. They send them home and they go back for the summer. Uh, yeah, it could be. There's a lot of that, but it's not, that's not as much of much of the workforce as you might think. Eh. Um, a lot of people do wind up settling here. Um, yeah. But like it's, I said, it's a long flight. The, 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 the part of the reason why the, the labor movement has typically not been able to be as strong here as in other places simply has to do with the fact that the demand for labor was so high that it just radically increased their wages. This is also why, for mm -hmm. example, you have a higher high school dropout rate traditionally in Alberta. I don't know if that's still true, but it used to be. Oh, so like, yeah, no, no. I've heard it, stories it, of people basically saying the hell with this and going out and getting an $85,000 a year job. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. This is also why even in, during boom times, for example, you were making $25 an hour as a Tim's worker. Like, you know, like that, you don't really need, or you, or a lot of people, workers didn't feel that they needed a lot of worker or didn't see a lot of value in union representation in an environment where their employers were basically showering them with services and benefits and 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 wage wage hikes, like yeah. you know, because they had to be to be competitive, and as a result, the culture around labor is, I think, very different here. Um, also, it means that I think a lot of the ideological stuff just doesn't have a lot of traction here. This is a question of, but also, keep in mind, I don't think that Alberta is ideologically conservative either. No, we like, talked about this. This is a this is a this is about a tribal affiliation and who's going to yeah. have our interests on our back. It's less about Burkean conservative. Oh no, it? I've looked at your per capita you know, spending. Like, I I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But anyway, that's another conversation. Um, I have like five minutes before I have to go get my son. So um, let's, do you want to we'll, do you want to well, put a pin in this here and then yeah, we can I think come what back? we'll do we'll do something a little unusual uh, for this podcast, which is we'll actually uh, take a uh, a break while we're back. We're um, back. We were talking just before the break. Jen had to go uh, pick up her, her little one. Uh, we were talking about a couple stories we wanted to cover. The Israel one, I don't, I don't have a lot to say. Um, I don't feel as though anything in, in my view or I think your view has changed since we last did one of these. Uh, the fighting continues. Um, it's lower intensity now. Most of the heavy combat seems to be over, but the uh, death toll is still enormous. Um the only kind of the only two things I think are, are germane is that um, we wrote in our dispatch last week uh, about the International Court of Justice, I think the ICJ, mm -hmm. I think it is. Yeah. Uh, in the South African case against Israel, we're not impressed by it. I thought Canada had originally taken the right stand, which was kind of go, look, we, we disagree with the contention of uh, the case. But now the Canadian position seems to be we will respect whatever the ruling is. And you know, we'll abide by it, whatever that means. We're just adrift. Like, like I, I don't know, like I said, if you if you fundamentally think that there's a problem with the premise of the case before the ICJ, then why would you preemptively agree to abide by it even before it's really been presented or fought? Because we're adrift. It, yeah, essentially, it's it's once again we're just trying to thread a needle that can't be threaded, right? Um, and also, I mean, we we went into this into our last dispatch, so I'm not going to spend too much more time on it. But I think that the, the ICJ should be and ought to be a forum where people are presenting significant and serious arguments about whether or not what Israel is doing is correct or not. But you kind of lose credibility when you start with this is genocide, and there's not a lot of I and mean, that's. I will quote Melanie Jolie herself, that is a high evidentiary bar to meet. Um, and you need to present a pretty rock solid case for it. And the rock solid case for that claim is not there. There may be lots of other very credible claims for war crimes. 
I think that you could make a credible case for disproportionality. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, you have to be, if you're going to be the IC, ICJ and you're going to be taken seriously, you know, you, you can't become an activist from, from an activist position, right? Like you have to be a very fair-minded, detached and level-headed. Otherwise, uh, states will have no reason and won't submit to your contention, ruling and punishments. Just what it is. I mean, I, I've said this before. I've said it again. I will. I'm sure I will say it again. Israel don't give a fuck. Like the Israelis well, have they concluded. Kind of, they, kind oh, they, do. Look, they don't want to lose. But if the court rules against them, do you think the IDF goes, well, shucks and goes home? Well, they, they, they've agreed to uh, litigate it. I mean, to that extent, there's a possibility that the ruling goes against genocide and that could be a coup for Israel. Right. I mean, that could go that way. Um, They'll I think take they, the win, I but they won't be I, deterred by a loss. No, I agree with you. I mean, the other thing, too, is uh, Israel is dependent on foreign nations like America for support and a loss, even on a ruling that they've re they've rejected the premise on of continues to harm their um, external geopolitical support. That's that's not good for Israel in the long run. So, you know, it, it they're playing, I think, an interesting um, high stakes game of by by litigating and, and treating the charge seriously and choosing to litigate it and trusting to the court's process to get a, a an accurate and fair outcome um that they can potentially then hammer against their critics right use the hammer against their critics so that's interesting canada's sort of lack of response or weird quasi we respect the premise of the I icj but or sorry we respect the purpose of the icj but not the premise of this case but will abide by the outcome and that's just that's logically inconsistent um the other thing is what does abide by mean what does that mean? What, what, what are we gonna? We, are we gonna? Sorry, assemble... I was fixing stuff while you were gone. I'm now fiddling with pliers. Don't be That's intimidated. Fine. Like, are we gonna go send the Canadian military to arrest the head of the IDF? Like, what? What does He's abide busy. by? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What? What? What exactly does our abiding by do anything? Like, or what? What? what, what uh, Look, this is all it, domestic. It's all domestic. The, yeah, the the coherence of our position on this issue has just been tanking for a month and a half. So the only, the only other thing I would probably note on the Israel specifically front is um, though you and I are pretty four square in Israel's corner on, on this conflict, we've both been pretty adamantly critical of Netanyahu and boy, he ain't making friends like the no. way his comment this week that he does not want a successor or Palestinian state to emerge from this. Um, it's, it's an interesting one because that's, that has got – look, I, I don't know Israeli domestic politics as well as I feel like I should these days, but uh, that's the sort of thing you say for domestic audience because it ain't when you friends abroad. But I, I also think there's par – part of me – like I, I support the concept of a two-state solution. I support the concept of an independent Palestinian state living in prosperity and security. But I also am just looking at the state of play on the ground now. I just don't see any practical path for that in any near term. This this would be my my question. Now you and I again, like I said, no fans of Netanyahu. I think that he should have been removed turfed immediately. Turfed immediately. I don't think that he is the leader for this particular moment, and he is no. not going to help Israel gain friends or generate international support for what it's doing. Also, I think there's some there's some interesting questions. Like, look, do you think Netanyahu is going to string out this conflict in order to maintain his own domestic political advantages, despite the fact that he's got basically four percent support? Like. I think he yeah. would. I don't I know if his would. coalition partners will allow him. Well, they're allowing him to date now, haven't they? To date, yes. So anyway, so like this is a really interesting question. Um, him saying no two states solution, you're right, is only going to alienate potential supporters uh, abroad, particularly in the U.S., and that's important. But I also am kind of... It, is a two-state solution plausible post-October 7th, I think is an interesting question, and I don't have an answer for it. You and in I- the West we, Bank, maybe, in Gaza. Gaza is a, is a rubble heap now with no government, and the only likely successor government will be someone even nastier than Hamas. Right. So is that a reflection of just the, the actual reality on the ground, or is that a reflection so. of intent? I, I, I don't know. So like I said, you and I are very removed from this particular conflict. Um mostly we pay attention to the degree to which the conflict is affecting or not affecting domestic politics and domestic sort of or regional stability or, yeah yeah in, internal stability for us 
Uh, and that's where I think our focus, frankly, ought to be. You know, like we're we're Canadian commentary. Yep. Yeah, we're not going to solve the Middle East. We're not going to solve the Middle East. So um, interesting, though. I mean, I'm sure you've been watching this, but I mean, like the Red Sea's getting hotter. The Brits and the Americans have been bombing targets in Yemen. Mm -hmm. And this is just a complete wild card because this is the really what we need right now. The Pakistanis yeah. and the Iranians are now bombing each other. Did you see even the Taliban was like putting up a flag saying, hey, guys, Come on. I really don't like this escalation between Pakistan and Iran. This is not great. For uh, us. I the whole world feels like it's one errant sneeze away from catastrophe. Um, subscribe to the line today. Yeah, exactly. So we, we, we've only got a few minutes left here. Um, I, I kind of feel like I, I had my say on the uh, the Sabrina Mado issue in, in my column. It went up on Friday. Uh, you had some comments you wanted to make, though, about journalists who cross over to either political life or public service of some kind in a, in a political role. Yeah, exactly. And this is this is tangential to your point. And that was, firstly, I do think that there is a potential concern that Sabrina Mado, who maybe we should give some background on this one. Sabrina Mado is kind of like a columnist for a couple of years at uh, Post Media and The Post. She announced, I think last week, that she was going to uh, run for the Conservatives in... Um, she announced, what? sorry, let me, the timeline is she announced a week or two ago that she was leaving The Post and that she yeah. would have a future announcement. The announcement came this week. She's running for the Conservatives in the 905. Oh, a little parenting break here for Jen. Yeah, a little parenting break. Sorry, I had to yell at me, kid. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, the announcement that she was leaving her post column was, I think, two weeks ago, roughly. And then this week, uh, in a video on social, she announced that she's running uh, for a seat near our shared hometown of Richmond Hill, Ontario. I didn't know she was from there. So this is interesting on a couple of different points. I think you basically we're correct in calling out the hypocrisy of everyone involved here. Um, firstly, the liberals are in no position to be criticizing a former journalist making the jump to politics. You know, in addition to the uh, to the names that you had in your column, I would add Christia Freeland, who was a journalist in a Canadian capacity and an international capacity until 2013. Um, you know, you've got Lisa Hepner, who's uh, been on the committee on the... Um, heritage committee for mm -hmm. quite a while now and then of course uh people everybody wants to gloss over when they're defending the liberals and attacking sabrina and, and that's and that's michael then pat so firstly i just want to say i do think that there potentially is a concern with post media keeping sabrina on as a columnist for as long as they did Agreed. i think that there was a pretty clear overlap where it was obvious that she was going to run and allowing her to continue to build a profile at the expense of the post during that period. I think that was probably a mistake. That you'll never know what punches she pulled because yeah, she exactly. was in the middle we'll of a job know. interview. Correct. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, I, I would agree with that generally. That said, I have broadly speaking, way less of a problem with a journalist quitting their job as a journalist and running to be elected through a nomination process, but also through the ordinary electoral process. Yeah. I have way less of a problem with that than with journalists quitting their job in journalism and going to work as a comm slack, going mm -hmm. to work uh, in some of these, in a, in a in a strategist or a lobbyist role, or going to work in sort of these quasi-media agencies that are attached to some of these strategists. I mean, when when the NDP actually won here in Alberta, there was a whole bunch of well-known Alberta journalists who went and joined their shop to, as in a comms capacity, and like the the comms to journalism pipeline is 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 well established, and I think that that's not a very transparent pipeline to most ordinary people. You don't see how many journalists, former journalists, are di directly hired from the job into these political comms roles or to these advisory roles. Um, I think there was one link I sent you. Uh, it was like Evan Solomon, well-known guy, uh, hired to G Zero Media, G Zero Media, attached, yep. which, which is kind of like a quasi-journalistic outlet, but it's kind of not, and it's attached to the Eurasia Group, which of course is well-known because Gerald Butts is, um, I think, a partner of the Eurasia Group, a consultancy firm, sort of an international consultancy firm. There's a lot more back and trade horse trading that happens in a way that's much more um, opaque to the public around those kinds of roles. And I think for me as a journalist, that's a much bigger problem than a journalist, and especially a columnist, right? A columnist who is, you know, 
yeah, we'll never know how many, what punches Sabrina pulled, but bluntly, the answer is probably not many because. Like I said in my column, there's no sudden pivot. There's no sudden behavior or positions. This is, this is what I would, this isn't, this isn't a totally unnatural progression. And ultimately she's going to have to be accountable to the people of Richmond Hill. The people of Richmond Hill are going to have to make a choice to decide whether or not she's a, a, a credible representative for them. And that is a much more open and difficult process than just taking some backroom job, doubling your salary and saying no more. And also, I, I would also secondly, I have less of a problem with this for a columnist than for a, a, a more objective reporter type role. Um, a few years ago, a reporter I'd worked with for years suddenly quit and had an immediately partisan job. Yeah. And that, that that's more of a problem for me than what Sabrina's doing. If I were to, or you were, or I were to go quit and run for a party. I think that that would be a more natural progression of our career than for someone who's working at the CBC as a workaday reporter to go take, you know, some six figure job in a comms firm, which is a much more common, that's by the way, much more common than what, than what, than what Sabrina's doing. So, uh, you know, a kind of quasi, and I'll show the post media was on the right here, but at the same time, I kind of have no issue with what Sabrina's doing. Um, and ultimately she'll have to decide whether, or she'll have to be elected or not elected. And then she's going to have to decide her career from there. Uh, the other thing that we used to have in journalism was, was, um, there was a bit of a, of a wall where once you would cross the Rubicon, you couldn't come back. That was a much more normal standard of practice in journalism. Uh, and I think that's, that wall's broken down now. I think now you can sort of shift over into another role and then come back into journalism much more easily than you could have back when I started in, in back in the days when we were both young. So I think that's an issue. The other problem issue that, that nobody's talking about in all this is that as journalism is no longer a lifelong career path for the vast majority of people who enter it, where do you go from there? Right? Like yeah. for you and I are going to be stuck in this job forever because we're unhirable and unmanageable. That's fine. But most people aren't us. Most people are going to go take a couple years, do a couple years at a content, as a, basically content churners, or maybe they make it to middle management. They're going to realize that the job and pay sucks, and then they're going to go do other things. And what do their particular talents make them able to do? Well, it's comms, it's strategy, it's GR, it's those kinds of roles, right? So, uh, you know, there used to be a day when a journalism job, once you were journalism, there was a career path for life there. Yep. And the, the walls between these sphere of the, between these different kinds of organizations were pretty strict. And now it's not a job for life anymore. Um, and no, that, that and the companies aren't big and powerful enough to protect their people from you know right. fend off aggressive offers. And no. you mentioned G Zero. I don't I don't know a ton about G Zero or the Eurasia Group. Uh, I talk to Evan occasionally. Like, um, I'm like not, the I'm guy, not accusing but... I'm not accusing Evan Evan of anything oh, yeah. wrong. Like he's 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 following a path. That's fine. But, but I'm I, saying I think we should understand that that in the context, not of Evan Solomon's life path per se, mm -hmm. but of the fact that as conventional legacy independent media collapses, and I don't mean independent media like small outlets like us, it could have meant 30 years ago, a, a newspaper with 500 employees with its own sure. corporate structure. As that fades, there is a, a, a lack of places for think pieces to run and for research okay. to be published. So we're going to start seeing think tanks and large consulting and GR firms spin up their own media-like apparatuses. Yep. And we already they have will... seen that. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and there will be and, and ethical problems with that. This. Yeah, and ethical. Because if and, you're... And... Sergeant, but like if you are hypothetically, and this is an example I know of directly, if you're hired to go basically run the media shop of an association of industry uh, companies with, within a within sector of the economy, and then it turns out that one of the major CEOs of that company has been bad touching the interns, do you burn the guy? Or do you go, well, there's a $200,000 annual grant from that corporation to our industry. So, so mm -hmm. Like, and this is not like, it's not like we've never encountered that problem in the conventional media, but as the standalone independent media industry dies, versions of it are going to pop up elsewhere and there's going to be problems. And I believe- well, the, other thing, the other thing I was going to say is it's not even just the corporations and the consultancies that are creating their own little standalone media or media- Esque things. Esque things. You know, it's politicians themselves. I mean, didn't Doug Ford do this yeah, during the yeah. last election? He created his own sort of quasi-news channel, right? Justin Trudeau is his own media shop, or well, at least exactly. had been. 
So, so this is, this is where, and, and who are the obvious people to hire for these jobs, right? Experienced journalists. Experienced journalists. So yeah, as the entire media industry collapses, the traditional walls between the media industry writ large and everything sort of adjacent to it have also collapsed. And this means that you're going to get more bleed through of people from one area to the other. And it does raise really, really, really interesting questions around influence peddling and personal integrity issues and all the rest, which was all made for a way for me to say that dear listeners and subscribers of the line, if you would like to keep Jen Gerson and Matt Gurney out of the halls of power forever, which you should, please, which you absolutely should, please like and subscribe the line. As I said, my mortgage renewal is coming up. Please help me. Help me now. Help Jen Gerson. Help keep me out of politics. You know that meme that goes around occasionally on uh, on social media, which is like, what is the one thing you could say that would reveal to your loved ones that you're being held hostage? Mm-hmm. For me, it would be, I'm pleased to announce my candidacy. <laughs> um, well, you know, you you and I both say this because I think we're just, we're, we're um, not only are we sitting on way too much baggage as writers, but also, uh, it, we're we're very um, personally and personally ill adapted to that kind of a job. Yeah. I see what politicians do and what their work involves, and I think I would kill myself if I had to do it. I have one Not relative fun. who asks me all the time, "Hey, when are you going to run for council? When are you going to run for um, MPP? When are you going to run for MP?" And I just had to finally take him by the shoulders and look him dead in the eye and say, "Never," because it would be less money or more bullshit. I'm not winning either side of the equation. I'm never going to do it because I make more money and I'm happier and deal with less bullshit and fewer people and their problems. Like I look at what a a city councilor makes and I look at what their workload is and it's insane. Well, and also if if you were to make the jump away from journalism, there are just, there are many corporate roles where you could make, we could make better money and work even less. Like politics goes in the opposite direction. Yeah, politics is the wrong side of journalism. There, are, There's lots of other corporate roles that we could take. But the problem is that I don't think you want us in those halls of power either. No, you so don't like want us I said, in just, halls of power. You, you, you want to keep us out of the halls of power. You want to keep us safely relegated to here. bitching about things here on right the here. line, right yeah. here on the podcast. And if you would like to help, help us in that endeavor, keeping us safely ensconced away from actual influence, um, you know, it's, like it's, subscribe. it's a couple of bucks a month, man. That's all it takes. All it takes to keep us away from power. All right, Jen, that's great. Uh, well, you and I have another Zoom we got to go hop into now. So a yeah. uh, big thank you to everyone. Uh, I think we mostly remembered how to do a podcast. And with any luck, we'll do it again next week. Yay. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.